Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. All right, guys. Ooh, got real quiet. Yeah, when Noah says that I uh, have been interested in preaching, that part is true, and he and Courtney... Um, as I was pleading and crying, like, come on, guys, you got to give me a chance to preach. They finally let in because I just wouldn't leave their office. And so, seriously, guys, it is so great to be um, with you this evening. As Noah mentioned, I've uh, had the awesome privilege of being a part of our local church here for nearly seven years at this point. And so that entire time, I've had the opportunity to um, lead music here in youth and on Sunday mornings. And yeah, this is an amazing place to get to root into community, to get to know Jesus better, to get to dive into his word week in and week out. And that is what we're going to do tonight. In addition, and I would probably argue more importantly to what I do here at the church, I have a family, and you guys don't really get the chance to see them. You don't see them up here every week, as cute as that would be. So I think we have a photo of them. This is my wife, Allison. Everyone say, aw, for Allison. Thank you. And then this is our little baby boy, Noah. He was born in August, and he looks like his mom. So, whew, thank goodness. Oh, man. But guys, this morning, or sorry, this this evening, tonight, we're going to be looking at just the next section of the book of James. And so go ahead and open up. We're going to be towards the end of chapter 4 of James, starting in verse 13. And as we dive into this text tonight, I have a real, I have a beef to share with you guys. I hope that's okay. First time, first time up here in front of you, and I got a, a real beef. There are some stupid warning labels out there. I think all of us can think about a time when we've seen maybe a sign that's warning this or warning that, or maybe we've been told it by a parent or a teacher, and we're like, oh my gosh, here we go again. There are some truly stupid warning labels out there. An example would be when I was growing up, we uh, switched around what we were doing for satellite. Satellite was this way that we got TV way, way back in the day. And we had this just obscene this obscene thing called a universal remote. And so basically it was just a normal remote because it wouldn't actually connect to anything other than the TV. And it had about a billion buttons on it. And I kid you not, on the back of this remote, it said, warning, not dishwasher safe. (laughs) Not dishwasher safe. Which is kind of horrifying because you're like, who took the time to print this? And it's like, oh, it was probably the company after they got sued because somebody tried to wash their TV remote. Another example of just a silly warning label is, if you've ever seen these little carabiners, you know, these little clips, sometimes you use them to keep stuff from falling out of your backpack, or maybe you keep it um, to keep your car keys and your house key together, something like that. But on this little carabiner, as with many of them, it says, warning, not for real rock climbing. Most of the middle schoolers in the room could rip this apart with their bare hands. Like, who's using this for rock climbing? Like, we did not need to be told to not use this little dinky aluminum carabiner for rock climbing. And probably my favorite that I've experienced was in middle school, I took a ton of shop classes. Like, borderline didn't graduate because they were like, why didn't you take, you know, English and math and things that you actually need? And I was like, shop classes. Like, and in one of these classes, we got to work on small motors and like kind of smaller engines. And one of those was a chainsaw. So it was this big beast of a chainsaw. And students, I can't make this up because I just wouldn't. That would just be a bummer. 
on this chainsaw that we were working on, this big five-foot chainsaw for, like, for cutting down like real deal Pacific Northwest trees, it had a warning label. It said, warning, hold this end only when operating. <laughs> like it legitimately was clarifying, like just so everyone's on the same page, when you get the chainsaw started, having to hold the handle, just make sure not to flip it around and hold the sign with the you know, super fast, super sharp spinning blade. There are some just silly warning labels out there. And now, equally, on the opposite side of that, on the other hand, I think we can all think of times when we've seen or read or have experienced actually really helpful warning labels. Like, going back to that kitchen appliance example, you know, we can all, I think we're all pretty thankful when a bowl or a cup or a plate is like pretty clear, like, hey, not microwave safe. You know, that's like the most crushing defeat ever when you get home from school and you're like, I just need to warm up some food because I'm starving. And then you hear like a big like, a weird crackle and like a shatter sound and then there's just like a hot pocket like covered in broken ceramic and you're like man I needed a warning label there or maybe at the towards the beginning of a class you know you're starting a new term at school and you have that one teacher who's like just like a real bro real solid and is willing to tell you like hey guys warning a heads up like there is a massive assignment due at the end of this term and it's not going to be done in a week so get started that is a helpful a helpful warning label, and probably one of the most genuinely life-saving warning labels that I've ever experienced was I grew up very close to the Olympic National Park, and so we would go there all the time with friends because there was this really cool spot where you could kind of do some like cliff diving. It was really just like a, a house-sized boulder, and you could jump off like most of the sides of it, but on one of the sides, the side that was like the highest, and then we were all like, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm going to go jump off of that one the National Park Service had legitimately like anchored in this big sign that said, warning, no diving. What? I know, right? You're kind of like, oh, cool, let's just kill the fun while it happens. But the thing is, is that what people who would just show up to jump off this rock didn't realize is that like two or three feet under the surface of the water, that is not very far, just a few feet under the surface of the water were just tree trunks. It was a partially man-made lake and they had logged a lot of it. And so we would hear stories every single year of like kids our age that would had been like, you know, just kind of having a fun time and they totally disregarded that sign and like, I mean, broken necks, broken legs at best. It was a truly helpful warning label. And so this week, as we're going through the book of James, as we're taking this one, uh, this next section, we're going to see two warning labels from James, two warning labels and now, the elephant in the room here, and I think we can all understand this, having been in James for a few weeks, James is writing 2,000 years ago to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed all over the ancient world on the exact opposite side of the globe from where we are now. I mean, could we, can we think of a different cultural context? Can we think of people who are more different than us? But the thing is, students, is that the original audience to James's letter, the Christians who he's writing to, just like us, they were attempting to live in a world and to um, have their faith put into action, just like we are. And they were living in a broken world. They were living in a world that is just soaked in worldliness, in self-indulgence, in greediness, in sin. And so as we attempt to live this life as well, it would be silly of us to not take these warnings that James is going to offer us and actually consider them. And so if you would, we're going to go ahead and read this passage, but would you actually go ahead and stand up with me? Yeah. I heard that no. I heard that no. 
All right, guys, we're just going to shake it out for a second. We're going to be in God's word. And that's what we believe this is. We believe that this is God's word. And so we're going to take a moment right now, kind of loosen up. We're going to settle in. Because again, this is so important, students. So let's read James chapter 4, verses 13, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We'll get to that. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. We'll really get to that. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, let's pray. Father, we admit that a lot of this text is intimidating. We admit that just through an initial reading, we're a little confused. We don't know how this applies to us. But God, as we spend some time right now diving into your word, the words that you have spoken through James, God, we pray that you would give us open minds, that you would help us understand. God, would you give us soft and open hearts? Would you help this message take root in our lives? God, we have absolutely no interest in doing this without you. And so we pray that you would help us tonight And ultimately, God, would you help us to really live out these truths? Would you help us see our faith put into action? We love you. We give tonight to you. Pray this all in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. Thank you so much. So sweet. So we're going to look at this passage in, in two different kind of big sections. And I'm sure even just from that first reading, you kind of, you kind of caught on to. James really is addressing two different groups of people. So let's, let's go ahead and look back really quick at the end of chapter 14, verses 13 through 17. My bad. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Students, the first thing that James has to say to us tonight is warning Arrogance leads to death. 
warning. Arrogance leads to death. He opens up this part of his letter by calling out a very, very specific group of people. He says, come now, you who, and then he gives this list of things that are like, man, he really paints the picture of like, man, this is kind of a cocky group of people. You know, like, man, these guys kind of like think that they own the town. These guys that um, James is calling out here, these, these merchants, these salesmen who think that they have the, the power, they think that they're in control, they think that they can decide whenever we want, we can go wherever we want, we can stay there as long as we want, we can do whatever we want to do while we're there, and the best part, man, we're going to make a profit while we're there. We're going to be successful. So much of this profile that James is already developing and building for us, I think we can see that it's stuff that's really celebrated by our culture. Man, these guys are motivated. They have a business plan. They have timetables, whatever those are. And the best part is, man, they're sure of a profit. But there's something seriously flawed with the rationale, with the thinking that's going into the, like that these guys are displaying here. To put in a little context for us, these are kind of like the guys that James is describing are the guys, are the, the students who are in high school who like two and a half days into their freshman year are kind of like already trying to like gather references for their college application. They already have like the perfect roadmap to that like epic career that they're going to have where they're going to be like really successful and like run Google or something like that. You know, or to put it even a little bit, to exaggerate it a little bit more, like James is exaggerating it, these are like the, the middle schoolers, and middle schoolers, we love you, but who like, the middle schoolers who are kind of like, I dig basketball, like, I kind of want to be in the NBA. Step one, hit the court, figure out what a basketball is. Step two, become a baller. It's a lifestyle, it's a mindset. Step three, no biggie, get onto the varsity basketball team as a four-foot-tall, 80-pound sixth grader. It's like, you know, you got to have a game plan. Really, you have to have a game plan. Step four, time permitting, get drafted as a middle schooler into the NBA. And you're kind of like, you're like, I don't actually know that that's that realistic. But okay, bud, like, you do you. I mean, come on, James is, James is clearly displaying this really exaggerated kind of person. These people who genuinely think they have it all under control. And he follows that up by telling them, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, did we all live through the last year? Has anyone ever heard of coronavirus? No. There it is. Ah, I shouldn't have asked. But seriously, guys, I mean, do we, other than like, like think of the last like 14 or 15 months, do we need another, like do we need a bigger example of recognizing that we are not in control? We are not nearly as impactful as we think we are. Whatever this world tells us, whatever this culture says is a virtue, we know that there is someone so much more powerful, so much more sovereign and in control over this life. All of us had plans ruined this past year. We had high school graduations to attend or be a part of. We had dances that we were hoping for. We had fun plans over the summer that just got smashed because we couldn't, like we could barely leave our houses. And so as we move into verse 15, James explicitly develops what the issue is in these merchants' thinking. Verse 15, he says, instead... 
So instead of pretending like you have it all together, instead of pretending like you're the, the big man on campus, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What James is saying is that the problem with these merchants, with these ancient salesmen, is that they're like functional atheists. They are operating, they're living their lives as if God doesn't at all exist. It's all up to them. Their success or their failure hangs on their shoulders. And let's be super clear, students, because the real easy, the, the path of least resistance here would be like, okay, sweet, I'll just tag that cute little line about God's will onto whatever I do, and we'll be good. You gonna clean your room today? Mom, if the Lord wills, I'm sure my room will get clean. You know, like, hey, Jenkins, are you coming into work today? Boss, jefe, as we say on Cinco de Mayo, I'm sure if the Lord wills, I'll make it in for my shift. No, no, this is not what James is saying. This isn't just a simple behavior modification. What James is identifying as he's contrasting these, these two profiles, these, these two statements, he's trying to get at the heart of a reality within our world. This reality of even as Christians, we, we so often exist, we so often live our lives as if God has nothing to do with it. And then he really picks up steam in verse 16, and he calls them out even more. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting, all such living life as if God isn't real and doesn't exist, it is evil. It is sin. It leads to death. It is rebellion against God. Living arrogantly, students, living arrogant of the reality of God is actually evil. He's not mincing his words here. He's not sugarcoating it. Last week, and in our text this week, we're talking a lot about this term worldliness. And I think it's easy for us to just kind of like cheapen it and say like, ah, worldliness, that's something that is like real churchy sounding and like whatever. It's not. This is a real issue, and we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus are attempting to live this life, and we need to be aware of what this world is going to throw at us. And so this text, this, the first couple verses of our text tonight beg the question, do you live as a functional atheist? If you looked back at the last two hours, the last day, the last couple of days, the last week, would your actions, would the things that you do suggest that you have a deep, wonderful relationship with a God who has saved you, saved you from your sin, saved you from separation from him? Or students, would our lives look a little bit more like we think we got this, like we think we control the tides, like we control whether or not we make a profit or not? The name of our, of our series as we're working through James's book here, his letter to these, these Jewish Christians is faith in action. And that is exactly what James is pointing to here. He is calling for our faith, our faith in God, if we have legitimately trusted in Jesus to be enough, trusted in Jesus to save us despite our sin, despite our rebellion, he is calling for us to put that into action as an outward expression 
We talked earlier in this series about how we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by the things we do. We were, simply put, spiritually dead, and God, in his love for us, chose to make us alive. And that being said, our faith, actually having an outward expression, is just a natural result of faith in the first place. If we truly love God, if we truly want a relationship with him, it needs to work its way out in our lives. And we should be suspicious if it's not working itself out in our lives. And so that can be a really easy thing just to kind of throw out there and say like, okay, are we all good? Are we all on the same page? Great. But no, students, I want to encourage you. If you ask yourself that question, is my, does my life look more atheist than Christian? Does my life resemble a life that has been changed by the power of the good news of what Jesus has done? What fruit is there from it? Is it changing us all? Is it changing me? Is it causing me to want to pursue relationship with God? And students, if you're anything like me, there are a lot of days where it's just like, man, my, my life this week did not look like a follower of Jesus' life. And that's where over the, over the 2,000 years that the church has been a thing, the history of the church, there have been these things called the disciplines. And I mean, this is just one way that we pursue a relationship with God. It's things like making a very active priority of spending time in God's word. Doing our very best to develop a habit of prayer, of seeking God. He has given, he literally, God literally has given us the ability to at any moment in our day stop and thank him. Thank him that we had enough gas to get to that gas station. Thank him that we nailed that test that we were not at all prepared for. And we also have the ability to mourn. We have the ability to vent out our frustrations to a God who listens to us and he loves the biggest issues in our life. He listens when we are spilling our guts over sins that we are hiding, over divorces that are happening, over cancer results that we're getting. And guys, he loves us and he listens to us when we are just spilling our guts over the stupidest, pettiest things. Because he loves us. And so let's not read this text and think that we can just keep going through our lives without changing anything. James ends this section, verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Super simply put, he's saying, hey, you know what you need to do. Stop living as a functional atheist. Stop living as if God doesn't at all exist. Stop living as if you haven't been saved by his grace and his love and his mercy. And if we do, when we do live that way, we recognize that that is sin. That is brokenness in us. And so we go back to God. When we forget to pursue him, he calls us to simply just pursue him. To simply recognize that he is real, that he is God, that he loves us. I think of a season in my own life, guys. So when I was 
17, I was getting all ready to go, about to finish high school. I was heading off. I grew up, again, up kind of Olympic National Park, Seattle area. I was moving down here to Portland to go to a Bible college. I was like, I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to get into ministry. I'm going to be super theological. Didn't know what that really meant at that point, but cool. And you know what I didn't do that entire time as I was prepping to come to Bible college? I didn't pray. I was like, hey, God, you did a lot of heavy lifting the last few years. I think I got this. I'll kind of get myself through the next few years as I study you and who you are and how much you love us. I think I got it, though. See, what we should see from these first few verses is that there's nothing at all wrong with making plans. There's nothing at all wrong with living our lives and getting a job and studying for tests. But James is offering a very sincere, very loving warning here that we need to do all of what life entails, all of what life includes. We need to do recognizing the reality of God. Warning, James says, arrogance leads to death. So as we move into this next little movement, verses, chapter five, verses one through six, this is where it gets a little juicy, so let's do this thing. He says, come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, pause. I don't know why James is so frazzled. I don't know if it's something you guys said to him. I don't know if it's something, I don't know if Noah last week, Noah made fun of me last week. I don't know if he also made fun of James somehow, but James is fired up. No, see, students, again, remember, let's remember the context that we're in here. James is warning fellow believers, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith of the dangers of worldliness, the dangers of looking more like this world than we look like Christians. So he says to us lovingly, he says, warning, wealth comes at a cost. He's addressing two things here. He's addressing arrogance and he's addressing wealth, the wealth that defines this world. So in verse one, he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He is not messing around, guys. Super plainly put, as he's calling out this second group of people, he is saying simply, judgment is coming. For those of us here last week, we remember that Noah was kind of breaking down the beginning of chapter four, and what was he talking about? He was talking through James' James's description of God as a judge, as a righteous judge, as a loving judge, but as a judge. And so here he's developing this idea saying judgment is coming. He continues saying, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
Again, he's addressed these, these people who, these rich people, and he's developing it just a little bit, and he's going to clarify some things here in just a few verses. But he is making a very sincere promise to them. These riches and this wealth that they have hoarded, that they have greedily accumulated, it is wasting away. A super interesting little note here. Gold and silver, which he very confidently says have corroded, gold and silver literally do not corrode. Gold and silver cannot rust. It cannot go bad. You can't hoard a bunch of gold and silver and come back in a few years and be like, oh, no, it rusted. Why? That's not at all what happens. And so that cues us in. It's not like we, we as citizens youth didn't just find the first like, error in the Bible. Don't worry. But what this cues us into is that James is talking about a judgment. He is talking about a corrosion and a corruption, a wasting away that is way bigger than stuff just simply falling apart because it's a little old. James is pointing towards the end of days. He is pointing towards a time when this broken, this corrupted world will cease to exist. And next week, we are going to talk about what that's going to look like, and we're going to talk about the hope that we have as Christians in that reality. He says that the corrosion of their wealth will be used as evidence against them. The very fact that they have hoarded all these riches and all, these, all this silver and all this gold and all these, all these fine clothes and stuff like that, that hoarding and the fruit of it is going to be the very evidence against them. And he follows that up by saying, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You have got your bank account all beefed up right before the stock market collapses. For a lot of us in the room, we're kind of like, what's the stock market? Um, for a lot of us in the room, think of it as like you have saved up for weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe even months, to get that super dope denim jacket that you've been eyeing for a while to get that sweet new pair of Nikes. And you get it, and you've literally, you've worked your butt off. If you're a middle schooler, you've, am I allowed to say butt at youth? I said it, okay. Um, if you're a middle schooler, you've been mowing lawns, you've been doing yard work. If you're a high schooler, you've been working that part-time job, you've been picking up extra shifts, you've missed out on some stuff with your friends because you've been working on Saturdays. And you finally get that jacket, you finally get that new phone, you finally get that pair of shoes, and you're like, this is sweet. I'll be right back. You lay it out on your bed, you're like, okay, I'll be right back, and I'm going to lace those bad boys up. I'm going to throw that denim jacket on, and be looking good. You leave the room for a minute, and you come back, and your dog has torn that stuff up. Beyond recognition. There's no way you're getting a return, you're not getting store credit. That work, that thing that you sought for so desperately, so badly, the thing that you worked so hard to, to get, it is, it is gone. Or maybe you've worked tirelessly for months or even years to develop this certain kind of like, you know, cool, hipster, kind of weird, but it's like kind of cool persona on social media. You know who you are. You know? Like half, half of your timelines, like that's a sweet sidewalk. It's like, no, it's a sidewalk, like stop. And just like that, you have, you have your follower count right where you want it. And just like that, you're locked out of your account. 
this thing that you've worked so hard for, that you've put so much, so much effort into, it's just done. And you are at the mercy of the technical support people at Instagram or, I don't know, wherever, you know, wherever. I mean, let's be real, you are not getting back into that account. It's over. And so think about what James is saying here. He is calling out these people who have just hoarded wealth, who have been greedy. And he is saying that everything that they've done to accumulate that and all that they have accumulated, it is actually going to be evidence used against them when judgment comes. And in verse four, this is where he really develops what is so wrong with this wealth that he's describing, with the riches that he's describing. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, those wages are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The issue with this group of people, citizens, is that they have been oppressive with their wealth. They have been greedy with their wealth. They have quite literally robbed and defrauded people. They have stepped on people to make a quick buck. In this world, the world that James is writing to, many of those laborers, many of those harvesters, many of those servants, they were living, as we know it, paycheck to paycheck. And now for us, living in, even for those of us who might be living paycheck to paycheck, even in the, the culture and the context that we live in right now, paycheck to paycheck means you're paying for the next maybe two or three or four weeks with the last two or three or four weeks of work. I worked for two weeks, I got my paycheck, that is how I'm getting through the next two weeks. Students living paycheck to paycheck in this world meant that I'm buying tomorrow's food with what I earned today. And so when James is accusing them, accusing these evil rich people, these oppressively wealthy people, of holding back the wages that they rightly owe these laborers, he is not just accusing them of fraud, he's not just accusing them of bad business. He is very literally accusing them of murder, of oppression. And he finishes off his warning to these people in verse 5, saying, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. To put it simply, they have lived the good life according to the standards of this world. They had a sweet house. They had a ton of food, way more than they need. They had hoarded their wealth so they had a bunch of cars. And they had done this all evilly. They had done it all oppressively. They had done it all stepping on people who couldn't help, them, help themselves. And that's exactly how James closes this part of his letter. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, simply put, James is saying that these greedy, oppressively wealthy people have sought after the poor people, the people who have done absolutely nothing wrong. They've sought after their servants. They've gone after and attacked the people who are mowing their lawn, the people who are working in their gardens, who are taking care of their house. 
They have gone after these people. They have condemned them and they have murdered them. They have actually put them to death all to make a quick buck. And the worst part, that last sentence, he does not resist you. James is saying that these people that have just been stepped on, they can't fight back. In this culture, they are completely vulnerable. And so this is a very heavy text, students, and it's a text that takes a lot of effort for us to actually apply to our lives. So we ask ourselves, how do we relate to the riches that this world offers us? Even as a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, how do you think about money? How do you think about the wealth that our culture values so highly? Are you greedy for those, those, that pair of shoes? Are you greedy over hoarding and accumulating this vast social, social media following? Are you absolutely obsessed with that latest trend? Are you enslaved to it? And worst of all, are you willing to step on others? Are you willing to sin against God, against your friends and your family members? Are you willing to, to spread those rumors? Are you willing to do that, to get those things? Again, if you are anything like me, the answer is, unfortunately, a resounding yes. Yes, we do those things. Yes, we have a sick and twisted and distorted view of riches in this world. If I told you that the world is just going to straight up end tomorrow, not some, like, cool volcanic eruption, not an asteroid, just, it's done. Would your first instinct be to double check that your bank account's exactly where you want it to be? Would your first instinct be to zip down to the Apple store and grab the new iPhone? Would your first move be to post that one last image onto social media? Warning, students. James says to us, warning, wealth comes at a cost. Wealth comes at a great cost. And so it's with these two warnings in mind, these two warning labels that James has offered us, a warning against arrogance, a warning against functioning as an atheist and ignoring the reality of God, and a warning against being oppressively wealthy, a warning against the riches that this world offers us. With these two warnings in mind, we can see what in these sections, in these verses, James is trying to communicate to us. And it is simply the riches of this world will bankrupt you. The riches of this world will bankrupt us, citizens. And now, again, I understand you're asking right now, Max, do you, do you live in our world? Does James have any idea what, what kind of pressure? Does he have any idea what kind of pressure I'm under? What is expected of me by my friends and by my family members and by myself? It's impossible to just remember God in every moment of every day. It's impossible 
to just completely separate myself from the riches of this world. And students, in both of these warning labels, and this is, this is amazing, so if you're not paying attention, oh my goodness, this is, what, this is what we are here for. James, the weight that we feel from these two warnings, the danger that we sense. Remember at the beginning I talked about that lake where we would go jump off that rock? I know there are tree stumps down there now. And the reality is in our world, we have to jump. And we feel the weight of that. We cannot do this. And so what James is doing is as he is giving these two warning labels, he is pointing back to the one who has perfectly satisfied this for us. He is pointing back to Luke 22, which is right before Jesus is about to be arrested and falsely accused and tortured and brutally murdered. He goes and he prays. He separates himself from the disciples. It says he withdrew from them and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, if the Lord wills, remove this cup from me. God, if you are willing, do not make me go through the pain and the suffering that I'm about to go through. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Students, we have absolutely no hope to heed these warnings apart from Jesus. We have no hope. And similarly, as James is calling us to be warned against the wealth of this world and the, the, the heavy cost that it comes with, he is pointing back to Jesus. He is pointing back to Jesus as described in 2 Corinthians 8 when it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. As James is warning us against the wealth of this world and the riches that this world has to offer us, these fleeting riches that are going to waste away, he is pointing back and he is reminding us of his half-brother Jesus, the very son of God who came to this world, who was quite literally, as the prince of heaven, he was quite literally bankrupted for our sake. He came to this world. He was basically homeless his entire life. He lived a perfect life, keeping in perfect step, perfect alignment with God's will. He remained perfect in God's sight. He didn't sin. And so being perfect, being innocent, he took it upon himself to die for us. He took it upon himself to pay the price that we cannot pay. So I'm going to invite the band up, and we are going to respond, students, as we do every single week. We're going to respond by singing of God's goodness and his greatness, by singing and crying out and externally making it clear we believe this. As a community of students, we believe this. And so to leave you with two notes, if you are not a Christian, students, if you are not a Christian, there is one next step for you. 
I would urge you to put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in the one who bankrupted himself so that we would not have to live under the weight of this world. We would not have to live under the weight of worldliness. If you call out to Jesus, he will be faithful to answer you. He will be faithful to forgive you of the ways that we cave into this world, into this culture. And if you are a Christian, I would urge you, let's stop living like atheists. Let's stop living as if God isn't real. Let's pursue relationship with him. And let's embrace and accept the grace that God shows us every single day to get through life in this world. James is beginning to close his letter and he wants to see our faith in action. And that is what we get to respond with. We recognize the warning, the riches of this world will bankrupt you. And in light of that, we go to Jesus, we cling to him, we ask for his forgiveness when we need it. And we rest in the peace and the grace that only he can offer us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us through James. And as hard as these warnings are, you have offered us warnings because you love us. You have offered us warnings because you do not want to see us succumb to worldliness. You don't want to see us become enslaved to the things of this world, to the riches of this world. So God, we thank you for the grace that you're showing us and we pray that you would give us the faith to respond every day of this week. We love you and we thank you for who you are and all that you have done and accomplished for us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen, amen. Would you guys go ahead and stand and let's sing.